Very, very cool. Okay, Acts chapter um, 8. We want to begin at verse, let's see, um, let's go to verse 26 of Acts chapter 8. But the angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go south. It's amazing the conversation, the detailed conversations that the that God had with people, <clears throat> angels had with people, just conversing with them in, um, you know, we're trying to figure out if it's a no or a yes. Is that a yo yo? We're trying to get one syllable out of heaven. Is it a yes or no? That type of thing. God is just talking to Moses like a friend. And here the angels talking to Philip like a friend. And he said, I want you to get up and go south. Uh, by the road that runs through the desert from Jerusalem to Gaza, uh, for the town is now deserted. So I want you to go south on a desert road. I want you to keep that phrase in your heart. I want you to go south on a desert road. Now, Acts chapter 8 is really, you got to cluster it with beginning in Acts 6, where there was a, this dramatic shift Two types of attacks that came to the church when it first was being birthed and formed. One was a care issue. The second attack was a truth issue. This story kind of falls between the care issue and the truth issue. Um, In Acts chapter 6, some widows that were Hellenistic or Greek speaking were being overlooked and they were being, it was being interpreted that there was favoritism that the native uh, Hebrew uh, uh, widows Um, because of their position with the disciples was they were being cared for. And so they actually made a racial claim between the Gentile and the Jew that this group of Gentile widows is being overlooked in favor of this other group of widows that are, that are Jewish. And so from that conflict, because it says that the church was growing, but a complaint arose and that's the natural sequence. When anything begins to increase, it brings conflict. And it says the church was growing in Acts 6 and a complaint arose. And the complaint was over the care of the widows. So the church is at a crossroads of care. They said they're being overlooked. And when anybody's overlooked, it's a problem in the church. When anybody's overlooked, people are going to pick sides. People are going to take up the offense. They're going to grab hold of the emotion when somebody is overlooked. And we see that heightened sense in the construct of our world today. People have completely organized their life around the perception of of a person or a people group that's overlooked. It's natural to the human heart. And so we see this in Acts 6. Well, that point of conflict really is a portal in which this whole new thing is released on the church. Jesus never talked about deacons in, in the Gospels. He talked about the quality of the kingdom, not the structure of the church. He gave hints of eldership and he appointed these disciples that would move in authority. But structure, structure was not in play in the gospels. Jesus never gave an outline of how the church should be organized. But he knew at the strategic moments of conflict or impasse that a new idea was about to be released. And that new idea was, I want you to select seven of these men that would help as deacons. Among them were the infamous Phillips and the Stevens and this wonderful group that could serve tables and operate in the miraculous, by the way, Um, so that the apostles could stay dedicated to prayer and to the word 
They had to enlarge and delegate, and this new idea for how the church should be organized was born out of an impasse. When you succeed, success always brings you to an impasse, not a new plateau, an impasse. What do we do next? We have unintended consequences going on in Act 6. The thing is growing so fast that people are being overlooked and it's noticeable. And so there was an examination, an internal audit by the stakeholders of the church that said, this is not good. They began to polarize. And so instead of becoming defensive at the impasse, the, the early apostles took a step back and said, we're not going to redirect our life purpose. We are prayer people. We're word people. We still serve. But let's release this new layer of leadership. And they were called deacons. And now the church was beginning to form and develop a growing structure, an organization around the organism, which was the church. So this idea of deacons was born in Acts 6, out of an impasse and out of a complaint. So don't ever, when you get to a point of conflict in life and this is not working, like, man, we're just stuck. I don't know what to do next. Understand that in that moment, oftentimes is the release of the next idea. The solution is coming. Just hold steady, wait on the Lord. Don't get defensive. Don't get defensive. And now this new thing happened and there's other activity and new players begin to emerge in the book of Acts. New leaders start to emerge beyond the initial uh, 12 and, uh, and that's with, of course, uh, um, Barsabbas and Barnabas and you know who Barsabbas was? He was the guy that replaced Judas in Acts chapter 1. So he's one of the 12 but that they were part of that initial wave of leadership empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now we get to the next wave of players in the book of Acts that's born out of this complaint. All right, so this happens. Then there's all kinds of crazy stuff. Stephen emerges. This, this deacon, he has, a, he has a, a short shelf life, let's just say that. And he operates in miracles. Um, this man who was serving tables was also operating in the supernatural. And he was a phenomenal preacher. And one of the greatest sermons in the book of Acts emerges through Stephen. And just remember this about preaching in the book of Acts. I've told you this before. It's worth a reminder. There were no speaking engagements in the book of Acts. Nobody was scheduled. Nobody got on a plane. Nobody got picked up by hospitality in an Escalade and had their almond joys in their Perrier sitting there for them and then taken to the hotel and checked in ahead of time and making certain that the credit card has already been processed before you get to the counter and you get to the room and then the basket, this amazing several hundred dollar basket with cellophane that you can't punch through and, and uh, um, all kinds of stuff like that. None of that was in the book of Acts. There was no green rooms in the book of Acts. There was no, there was no honorariums in the book of Acts. Uh, there was nobody taking you back to the airport. Let's get your hotel closer to the airport so you get up in the morning. Nobody was facilitating any of that stuff in the book of Acts. Nobody had time to prepare their messages in the book of Acts. Peter, Stephen, I could go on and on. They were all spontaneous, eruptive messages born out of pressure and born out of the moment. Where, where did all the content come from? 
because they didn't even know they were speaking. Um, well, I traveled to Brazil, been to Brazil several times. Down there, if you travel, if you're a preacher in Brazil, there's church almost every night. You carry a message with you. They say, you're, you're scheduled to speak next week, but if you visit the service, have a message, and you may find out one minute before you and it, and it happened to me in front of 10,000 people in Belém, Brazil. I'm on the platform. The pastor turned around and greeted me, and he says, would you come and deliver the word, sir? So I had to stand up, preach in front of 10,000 people. Had a message in my heart because someone prepared, told me to do it. But the book of Acts was not a series of speaking engagements. You can't find the only thing that kind of hints of preparation is the Apostle Paul had a night to prepare before he addressed Festus and some of the, the uh, uh, government structure before he was shipped off to Rome. But if you want to count, hey, he had a night to prepare, it really was a defense. But the key sermons in the book of Acts all happened on a dime, man. Everything just happened spontaneously. Can you imagine that? And think how we translate that into our, the way that we prepare in our modern world to preach. So where'd the content come from? It came from the treasury of these leaders' lives. The word was so in them that it came from somewhere that was prepared in their heart, and it just was an overflow. It always strikes me when I read through Stephen's sermon, and then, of course, you know what happens to Stephen. His preaching only makes life for him worse, and the altar call is his execution. He's being stoned to death, and he is, uh, I, I don't know what it's like to die from rocks, but can you imagine that? And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, and many scholars say that was an aberration, and that it was Jesus giving him a standing ovation. It's a pretty cool pop culture way of drawing attention to that text and the magnitude of Stephen's faithfulness. As he died with a memory verse on his lips, because the last thing Stephen said before going unconscious and then into a place of, of eternity, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you imagine dying and you're mimicking the words of Jesus with your last breath. You, are, you die with a memory verse on your mouth. Doing exactly what Jesus did with your final breath. It's powerful. And then we have a little scene in Acts 7 there of Simon. This man who wants to buy the Holy Spirit. He's mesmerized by this manifestation. So it said great persecution arose after Stephen's death and they were scattered and the church multiplied. Every time the devil came against the church, there were seven prominent attacks in the book of Acts against the church. Threatenings, there was beatings, there was incarceration, there was martyrdom, there was poor administration. Every time it increased the church. Every time the devil tried to scatter it, it grew. So you have Simon trying to buy the Holy Spirit. And then he's rebuked for that. You can't purchase the Holy Spirit. And so then Philip shows up. And the angel tells Philip, I want you to go south on a desert road. First of all, who does that? This is an accomplished leader that is demonstrating a Stephen-like uh, leadership life. And he is told by the angel... I want you to go south on a desert road. And it says, so we got up and went. How many would change your direction based on that little fortune cookie bit, little confetti piece of information? I know this. I know it sounds simplistic. But when I was 16, I was at an altar and I was resting. Some guy pulled me out of the service and said I was going to preach the gospel. And I thought he was crazy. I wasn't even a Christian. 
Like, you got to be a Christian to do that, dude. I'm, I don't even know the Lord, love the Lord. I'm going to be a preacher? That's just whack. And I just thought it was crazy, Bill. And then I began to learn that in the Bible, almost every significant life was given the outcome of their life before they even began the journey along the way. Abraham, you're going to be the father of a nation. What? I don't even have one kid. And I'm old. That's, that's craziness. How is that possible? And then the Lord takes us on the journey toward, the, toward that prophetic picture that we're given, that outcome. We have to have that mountain peak to keep us going. It could be a tiny little sliver, a little promise. And for me, it was a prophecy about my life. But then what really sealed the deal, I was headed to Seattle Pacific to play basketball in the summer of 1980. And I'm visiting this little church in Chowchilla, California. And this goofy man walks out in a white three-piece polyester suit. And you'd have to understand. Maybe the internet will help you understand what I'm saying. And he looked like a caricature off Saturday Night Live, like he was making fun of Christianity. And he had a big old microphone, had a big Nerf ball on the end of it, back when he had big, big red or orange or yellow Nerf balls on the microphone that never got changed and they would just smell terrible. Oh, it was awful. How many know what I'm talking about? Just absolutely. How did the Lord use us back then? I don't even know how we got here. He preached some simple message, but it pierced my soul and I got on my knees at the altar. For an hour, I was lost. I sobbed my eyes out. I repented of every sin that I knew I committed and all the puke was leaving me and love was backfilling it instantly. Love was pouring into the vacuum where the sin and the confession was, get out of my life, Satan. I began to speak in tongues and I was filled with the spirit and then that call of God, it hit me. And all I saw is that people were gonna die and go to hell if I don't obey God and preach. That's it. I changed my whole life based on that very subtle flashing image of a world dying and going to hell and that, God, you want me to preach the gospel and keep people from dying and going to hell. That's it. There was no strategy. There was no world in front of me that God was showing me, hey, here's Karen. You're going to meet her in about a year and a half. And here's your four kids, and this one's going to play college football. This one will be a pastor in Oakland. Here's your 11 grandkids. Here's, you're going to be a pastor here, 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 and then you're going to be a college president, and here's what I'm offering you. Are you kidding me? Go south on a desert road. So he went. I'm telling you that part of the dilemma in the information age, the knowledge age that you have, is that you're demanding all kinds of data and guarantee before you step out. It just doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. I changed my whole life. I went to Bethany Bible College instead of Seattle Pacific University in August of 1980 on a dime because I felt I had to preach or people would die and go to hell. That was it. So he goes south on a desert road. It's shocking, first of all, because Gaza is deserted. That idea of the desert road means that Gaza was an uninhabited place. He's going in the middle of nowhere. This man who has arrived to a place of title and influence in the early church, Philip. And you know the rest. He got up and he went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch. And I remember as a kid reading eunuch. And I knew a little bit about the Bible, very little. I thought eunuch was the twin brother of Enoch. 
I thought eunuch and Enoch were brothers. Then I went to Bible school and found out that wasn't true. And I found out what a eunuch was at that point. And uh, yeah, so there's, there's a eunuch from Ethiopia. Probably was castrated as an act of governmental service and servitude to the queen. He was a member of the court of Candace, queen of Ethiopia. Her chief treasurer who had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he's on his way home. He was sitting in his car reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, Philip doesn't know this yet. It's a story told by Luke. All Philip knows is he's, he's going south on a desert road, and he went. You ever felt that way? Maybe coming to North Central, go south on a desert road, start the dream. Say, hey, go south on a desert road. This makes no sense, but I love the Lord. I trust his voice. I don't need guarantees. I need to walk by faith. And the Bible says that then the Spirit said to Philip, go up and run to that chariot. So he ran, is what the Bible says. <laughs> hey, go south on a desert road. And then you see that strange thing out here in the middle of nowhere? Go run up next to it. Who really does this? Who really operates with such little understanding of the assignment and yet with such passion? The Bible says he ran. And when he ran up, then it says that Philip heard. Now the natural senses take over. And he heard him reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he said to him, now he understood. But I'm telling you, the first two steps in the equation were lunacy. Didn't make sense. Why am I here and why am I running up next to a strange chariot? His mind had yet to engage or to... Fill in the blanks, close the gap, and understand the sequence. And all I can tell you, as I near 6-0, is that the strategic stages of my life have always been like Phillips. There, especially, I will say, early on, where I had to take a step of faith with very little data and very little promises other than what God promised. But I had no human understanding, and it didn't make sense to be in the middle of nowhere, I'm headed south, I'm on a desert road, and now I'm running like a fool next to a chariot being driven by somebody I've never met. But when he gets close enough to the setting, by faith, now he sees the purpose and the reasoning. You know, worship team, you guys can come up here. You already are anyway, so you might as well keep going. So that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. Now watch this. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? So now Philip's calling his mission, his treasury takes over. And he now he begins to understand why God has led him there. It's a beautiful moment in your life when you realize this is why God led me here. But if you need to know that before you start, you probably will never start. 
I just don't think the Lord releases all that information ahead of time to us. He wants us to lean into his voice. He wants us to trust his leading in our life. He's not playing games with us. He's developing us for future faith and future assignment, future strength. That's why when God does miracles of money in your life and provides resources, like, where'd that money come from? This is great. I prayed it's here, the $500. Do you know why he's doing those little hors d'oeuvres? It's because one day you're going to have to pray for somebody with cancer when it's the real deal. It's not you needing 500 bucks. It's them needing healing from cancer. But all the little hors d'oeuvres along the way are building us up in our most holy faith. So that when the big dog comes, when the giant is there, we have been practicing our accuracy against the trees like David when he's by himself and he's doing target practice with his sling and suddenly the tree becomes a giant. It becomes legit. So when we are going south on a desert road and running up to the chariot without any reasonable, reasonable explanation for this, and then we get close enough, obedience to his voice brings us close enough that our human senses begin to understand. So this is why God brought me here. This is why God positioned me here. It's powerful. He then begins to explain what this Ethiopian eunuch is reading in the chariot. He's had some type of spiritual encounter in Jerusalem. He's, he's in the mix. He's in the arena He's in the periphery, he's there, he's in Jerusalem, but it's not clear yet until the embodiment of Christ in Philip, who has been now emerged into kingdom leadership because of an impasse and a conflict in chapter 6, because it was growing too fast and people were being overlooked and the Holy Spirit had to release some new ideas and new leaders, positioned him, and then identified him, and then the Holy Spirit says, your assignment is right now not to, you're going to serve a different kind of table right now, Philip. I just need you to run in the desert, middle of nowhere, over here. And it's going to make sense to you at some point. So just lastly, he baptizes him. And it's craziness. One of the greatest crazy miracles in the entire Bible. I think this stands alone. Um, he explains what to do. Philip, then down in verse 43, began from that passage where he was reading and he told them the good news of Jesus. From any point of beginning in the Bible, we should be able to help people, no matter what their point of entry, spiritually, help them begin to understand who Jesus is. Let's all stand together across this room. Now watch this as we bring this down to a landing. Philip began to share about Jesus. They went on along the road and they came to some water. The eunuch said, here's some water. What is there to prevent me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop and Philip and the eunuch, they went down to the water and Philip baptized him. This is crazy. When they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord escorted Philip away. And the eunuch saw nothing more of him. Boom, they go in the water. The guys, you know, here, pinch your nose, grab your forehand, put your hand here, you know, whatever we do. Puts him under the water. The dude is under, comes up out of the water. Ho, ho, goes to hug Philip, and he's gone. It said he was no more. 
Philip found himself at Azotus, or Ashdod in some translations, but Azotus. That's 26 miles from this spot. He was translated. This is like us talking, hugging, give each other a hug. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. Then your arms just kind of close in the, where'd you go? And suddenly you're down in Rochester. You're standing there going, what? That's more than 26 miles. I don't know what's 26 miles. He's gone and he has been like this Star Trek thing. He's been taken. It's unbelievable. Say what you want. The Bible's saying that God vaporized the dude in the tank and took him 26 miles into another town and he's standing there. Go south on a desert road. I'm grinding in obedience and with very little knowledge. I'm walking. Now I'm physically running up next to a chariot. All I can tell you, friends, is when you step out in faith, you don't demand guarantees from God, you're willing to do what he asks you to do. I'm telling you, then he will show up again in your life and give you a quantum promotion, a quantum leap into the future. So he went south running in the desert and suddenly God catapults him into a new dimension, a new location, a new place. And I don't mean some reckless, like I'm here, then I'm there, I'm changing my, my commitments. No, I'm just talking about spiritually you will experience the supernatural quantum promotion of God at some point as a result of you faithfully stepping down a desert road, going south, running up next to the chariot, and God looks down and says, I'm going to do something with you now that's going to blow your mind. I'm just going to take you into the future, bypass time and space, and the laws of logic and physics, and I'm going to do something we grinded and we're putting away 500 bucks for a church plant to build a new building. We did it for six years and we had some little $60,000 in our building fund. California, a businessman walked up and he said, God, talk to me. And I want to gift you a $13 million piece of property and a 70,000 square foot bowling alley that Harvest Church is in today. And in, and in, about 20 seconds of him talking. We were taken from the waters of the desert and we were taken 200 years into the future because I did the math. Based on our current savings, it would have taken us 203 years, 203 years at our current rate of faithfulness. So when God does miracles like that and gives you the hors d'oeuvres of resources so that you have the faith to pray over cancer. It's a miracle of time and space. It was a 200-year miracle he gave us, not a $13 million miracle. 200 years were shaved off of our labor. So go south on a desert road, run up to the chariot without saying, God, why are you making me do this? This is stupid. This is totally stupid. What? You'll be shocked. Your mind will comprehend at some point why you're there, why God sent you there, your assignment, faithful to it, and then God's going to give you Star Trek miracles. Star Trek miracles. Star Trek miracles are in store for your life in which quantum 
spaces will be traveled supernaturally in your life. Jesus, we just pray over our wonderful school, Jesus. Lord, the new buildings that need to be built. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for the phenomenal report. Four times the amount of juniors. Yesterday we heard of applied to North Central than there were last year at this time. Four times. For the fall of 23, God, those juniors prepping in the pipeline, God. That's some of our best numbers in the history of the school, God. Lord, the comeback is underway. The healing, taking this school through the fire the last two years in downtown Minneapolis. There are survivors in this room, God, but not victims. We are survivors. We are not victims in this room, God. And Father, I pray that that spirit of Philip would hit every young woman and every young man, every faculty and staff. The Lord, we would say, I'll go south on a desert road. I'll run up next to the chariot. I will help this world understand Jesus from whatever beginning point they are at. I'll get in that water in the middle of nowhere with no fanfare or applause or audience. And Lord, you're going to catapult this room and catapult this university and catapult us, God. From this location to that location, God. From this dimension to that dimension. From this level of blessing to that next level of blessing. Help me, Jesus, to love your word and find my life in the scriptures today, God. So we're going to pray. Here's what I want you to do. One of the great culture points we've had in the last four years is right now, floors and dorms and roommates get into a small circle to pray. I know some of you got to split. We're in here just for another 45 minutes. We just play music and we seek God and at about... 10 after, we get in a circle around the front here. We pray for each other. I'm here till 1230. I want to pray with you. But I know if you can't stay because you got to get to jobs in class, I get it a thousand percent. If you can stay for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, or stay till for 42 more minutes to seek God, um, do that. Pastor Brian, I am going to ask if you go in the lobby out there today. And anybody that feels an inkling toward Denver, Colorado, internships, graduation, this is an unbelievable space. Uh, for business leaders, um, ministry leaders, social work. He needs it all. We could take graduates from every aspect of this university and find a space of meaning uh, at, at what, what's going on in Denver. So uh, go find Pastor Brian out there. But we're just going to open these altars up. I'm going to ask if some of our staff and faculty just would make their way across real quick. If you've brought a burden today from home, you've gone through something, something's happened this week that's just put uh, a heavy pressure on your soul, and you want somebody to pray with you, just find one of the team across the front here. We're going to pray. They'll take a minute to pray with you. But I just want to invite you to the altar. Get in a circle anywhere in the building with uh, your dorm mates, your floor. Pray for each other. Pray for the weekend. It's Friday. It's about, again, you guys know the two words, homework and holiness. Let's do it this weekend and let's stay faithful uh, and make it through the weekend strong. But we just want to ask Jesus to flood this campus and flood our world with the gospel. We spend a few extra minutes crying out to God 
on Friday afternoons for those who can stay and pray. So Jesus, we just ask, Lord, right now, Lord, as we just transition this beautiful chapel service, God, into a time of seeking, a time of agreement, Lord, uh, we pray if there's anyone that is sick among us, God, that they would be healed today, Jesus. Lord, if there's anyone here that needs to stand in the gap for a loved one back home, that, Father, at this altar, Lord, in this room, God, that healing answer would be sent this same self-hour, Lord, at 1149 to 1230, Lord, that in this window, God, miracles would begin to flow and fall, Lord, across our world, Jesus, because we are agreeing in faith. And, Father, just empower this university, Jesus. Lord, empower us, God. Send revival to every dorm, every floor, every room, every athlete, God, every musician, God, every business student, God. Revive every pastor in the making, every missionary in the making, God. Lord, every school teacher, Lord, being raised up. Revive them, Jesus, and put the fire of heaven in their heart, Lord. Revive our staff, God. Revive the faculty, God. Lord, I pray in this final month, God, of April, Lord, before graduation, and we break from this place, God. Give us a visitation of the Lord, God. Lord, give us a signal from heaven that you are with us, God. And Lord, we are following hard after you, Jesus. Lord, we give you praise, Lord. Fill those with the Holy Ghost today that need to be filled, God. Encourage the downtrodden, God. Put a song in our heart, God. Lord, lift off the heaviness, God. And Lord, that mantle of praise, God, let it rest. Lord, as we begin to seek you, Lord, right now, in Jesus' name, come find somebody to pray with, a student, or you just come get on your knees for a few minutes, or if you need prayer, staff and faculty are here to agree with you. God bless everybody. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.